Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another installment of the Travel and Tourism Podcast, my first season. My guest today worked for Club Med from 1996 to 2001. His first season was in Club Med Punta Cana in 1996 as a set designer. He might be the only set designer in Club Med that I have ever encountered that actually has a degree in set design from the University of Arizona. Around 1999, he helped form the A-Team, in which my guests and a few others would travel village to village evaluating the entertainment teams. I was working in Asia when all this was going on and had never heard of it before now, so I have a few questions about that. We will also talk about how he helped design Sharkies in Turks and Caicos in 1997. He is now a college professor and he's been living a very nomadic life the last 10 years. Please help me welcome, from around the world, the one and only Rap. Hey Rap, how are you, sir? Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thank you for agreeing to come on and share your story with us. So nice to finally meet you. Nice to meet you too. <laughs> Are you ready to light this candle, as the kids say? Absolutely. All right. So in our, our pre-interview, we learned that you were, I guess, looking for a job. You picked up a book about working abroad. Is that correct? Yeah, I wanted to see some of the world. And I've always been a person who avidly travels. So I'd been looking for something that got me out of the United States. And there was a, a book someone had published in places where you could find work outside of the United States. And Club Med was just one of the listed entries. And when you were doing your degree at the University of Arizona, did you know at the time about Club Med and that they actually had set designers? I knew absolutely nothing that wasn't available in a television commercial. Okay. All right. <laughs> so you had never, you had never, you weren't like a lot of other people. You, you'd never been there on vacation. You never went when you were younger, right? No. Okay. No, I knew, I knew nothing. I was a blank slate. Okay. <laughs> and about how long after you applied did they contact you? Mm, I think it was maybe three days. Oh, really? Okay. Week tops. Did you have to fly anywhere for the interview or did they do it over the phone? It was over the over the phone. I think it was a, um, a, a matter of lucky coincidence. Like I sent them a resume in which I am a set designer and they had lost their set designer from a village like that week. Okay. All right. And I'm supposing also like your whole time in Club Ed, you never met anyone else that had a degree in that, right? Uh, no, I did not. And I was in, I was in charge of the, the set design stage for North America for a couple, three years. And I think I got a furniture designer once. Oh, really? <laughs> that, was, that was about as, that was, and an interior designer once, but that was about as close as I came beyond that. It was, Mostly people who were artists of some kind as a background. Okay. So I guess that you were needed in, in Punta Cana, the uh, Dominican Republic. So you probably didn't care where they were going to send you as long as it was the Caribbean, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They were well into mid-season by the time I got there. So I was a, I was a mid-season replacement. And yeah, I didn't know anything about the Dominican Republic or uh, what my options were, really, <laughs> when they asked me to go there. <laughs> And when you arrived, I believe you, I think the chief of village, Joel DeWitt, was finishing up. And then you run into Kevin Batt, who I believe this was his first season as a chief of village. It, it was. Yeah, I was there for a couple of couple months, two and a half months in the at the end of the uh, Joel season. And then Kevin, I think I arrived in February and Kevin arrived in late April or early May. And what do you remember about arriving in Punta Cana that first day or first week? 
did you get any club med culture shock at all? Or were you wide eyed <laughs> and like, what's going on? Why is everyone dancing 10 times a day? I mean, a lot of that, I mean, I arrived in the middle of the night, so there was not really anyone to greet me. And then I just went to the theater in the morning when I got up and I started looking for people. There was nobody there. <laughs> like, so I looked around for most of the day until I finally found someone who directed me to the chief of animation. At which point I discovered that, I don't know if you, well, if you ask anybody who, who's ever been a chief of village, they'll tell you that all those departments get their budgets up front. So like by the middle of the season, they're mostly gone because the first thing the chief of animation told me was that I wasn't supposed to do anything that costs money. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm assuming Sorry, the set, the set, the sets were already built too, right? Like, so you're just basically. It was tinkering and maintenance mostly when I first got there. Okay. Do you recall any of the show, uh, big shows that they put on? Oh my God. So what were they doing when I got there? I remember the ones after. Okay. No problem. That I built for Kevin, but I don't remember any of the ones that the ones that were there for the first couple of months. There, I will say this: there was not a lot there. I actually felt uh, extremely underemployed. I was coming from a pretty high pressure environment, <laughs> and you know, to to fix up the theater and set up that guy's setups and whatnot only took me a couple three hours a day, uh, which at the time I thought meant I was doing a terrible job because I just spent all my time hanging out with guests and like playing volleyball and having long lunches. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like the dream to me, rap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought at the time I was like, I was like, Oh, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> that's now, not what uh, happened to me. <laughs> how long were you roughly uh, at Punta Cana? I got there in February and I left in the fall during storm season. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so winter, I was just going to ask you, did they, if they did any, well, it, number one, did they do any shows outside? And then two, like, did you find out half, uh, did you have to learn how to, you know, batten and fasten everything down in high winds? Because I know there are some, I worked with some set designers who had this whole series of metal clamps <laughs> and jury rigged a lot of things just to keep the set standing in the wind. So did you have to do any of that uh, your first season? It was, it was rainy, but not stormy that season. We didn't get a ton of, so what you're saying is that season, though you might have had a, a lot of rain, you didn't really have strong winds. Um, we didn't. I didn't encounter a hurricane that season, so I didn't. It was the next season before I learned anything about the whole hurricane prep, throw the chairs in the pool, batten down the hatches, drills. It just rained sometimes, but we actually had a whole. There was a group of like four of us in in the middle of the summer, and Kevin had a whole thing where uh, one person had to decide whether or not it was going to rain, and that person was responsible for whether or not it rained. Yes, yes, the worst, the worst. You're either a hero or a zero. Yes, I've had that placed upon me. It's the worst decision you could ever make. Oh, talk about it was all like we're like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no. Talk about pressure, right? Like you're not a weatherman yet. Here you are having to make the call. <laughs> you know, do we do yeah. it or not? So did that? Did you? Did this happen to you uh, a lot, more than once? <laughs> yeah, but nobody ever wanted to be the guy who says it's going to rain. So everybody said it's not going to rain. <laughs> And then on their day, just prayed that it wouldn't. Oh, really? Oh, I went the total opposite. I said, it's coming down. Like, don't do it. Do not do the dinner at the pool. <laughs> you know, to, well, to avoid get, doing the what they call the mise en place as well, right? Because it was yeah. always a, a nightmare uh, putting up a show at the pool or, or whatever. So, yeah, no, I always says it, it was going to rain. <laughs> okay. but, yeah, yeah. We were big on the massive garden party that season. So we did a lot of stuff like out amongst the palms. 
and you know and risk the rain. That okay. was a, a, a bi-weekly occurrence. <laughs> That's true. Well, what what else do you remember about that season? Anything special happened? Any anecdotes, stories? Well, um, like I said at the beginning, I'd been told that there was no money for me to do anything and I should not do anything. So and I didn't nobody ever explained to me what I was supposed to do there or what's good or bad. So about three weeks after Kevin showed up, I was he had one of those, you know, those meetings you have at midnight. And uh <laughs> I was in the, you know, where everybody comes and it's midnight in the middle of the night. And I was in the back row with my friend and uh, we were, you know, just laughing. And he's like, and then he like calls my name and I turn around. I'm like, did he just call me by name? <laughs> like, because at that point he'd never actually spoken to me. And I was like, oh God, I'm going to get publicly fired. <laughs> and then he was like, see, everybody should be more like rap. I was like, what is he talking about? And that's when I found out that like spending a lot of time at dinner was a good thing. Well, yeah, yeah, you were playing volleyball with with the guests too, right? Yeah, yeah. I thought, I, but I thought I was just kind of taking advantage of them. I didn't <laughs> like I I didn't realize that, that was kind of what you were supposed to do until like that day. So I went through like three months of just thinking that I'm like, okay, I don't really understand this, and I'm probably going to get fired, but I might as well have a good time while I'm here. But to me, having a good time was like having beers with like dudes on vacation. Yeah, and it's it's not a position you know we're accustomed to seeing like you know. Because I guess because you had right, you know, you had arrived after the fact that you know you, there are some villages I'm sure you worked at where you probably didn't have as much free time as you did that season in Punta, right? Oh well, no, no. After that, he got. I mean, when the new season's budget came in, I had to build an entire set of shows, and I'm a little bit of an overachiever on that front, so I have a tendency to build ones that are pretty complicated. Okay. <laughs> I kind of made made full days for myself on accident by really trying to push the envelope of what one could do with the available facilities. Okay. So you had to get creative sometimes too, uh, if you ran out of money? Yeah. No, it was actually one of the more interesting things about coming from, I mean, previous to this, I had been, well, I'd been working uh, actually in film stuff where there's miles more money and, you know, a hundred people there with you. So doing it alone with what you can, what you have available and what's on the islands and what you can get in your little shop was actually a really interesting challenge. I found that to be probably the most fascinating part about the job. Okay. Now, did Kevin ask you to go to Turks and Caicos or just happened that way your, your second season? Oh, uh, no, he, we, he literally took me to Turks and Caicos, like in a plane. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. He rented like a small 12 seater plane, like, him and like 10 of us. He does like his overachievers. So I'm assuming, yeah, I, I assume that you, you were invited to, to go to Turks. Yeah. So we all flew there together to check it out. And then we went home for a couple of weeks and then we came back and started the season. Oh, um, really? Wait, wait a minute. You're saying you went before your season even started? Yeah. We went directly from Putzkan. We flew to Turks. We had like a week there with the team that was there, looked around and then he said, okay, well, everyone's supposed to get a break between seasons. So we all went home and came back like for, I don't know, it was a couple of weeks. We were gone. And then like, we came back and started the season afresh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with a, so, so yeah, you're put, that was part of your, that's part of a, a big team, right? Because I know uh, Hammer was the chief of sports and, you know, he got married there. So this, yeah, I've had a lot of guests on that were part of this, uh, the season. So I know it was a special season, correct? Yeah, uh, 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 apparently so. I mean, that's what we heard about it anyway, that it was one of the most lauded season from the 
the standpoint of guest compliments. And, and I think we tried to do a lot of stuff that was really experimental. I think Kevin was very aggressive in trying to implement new, interesting programs. And it was a really, you know, sort of full-on experience from the time that he got there. So the little core that had come with us from Punta Cana, we sort of integrated with this new team. And that's when he was able to bring in a lot of people that he wanted to work with. That was where, for example, Hammer uh, came in when we started in Turks that season. And roughly how long into the season did he want to build Sharkies or what would become Sharkies and asked you, you know, any, got any design ideas? Like how, how, how after how many months had you got there or is it like immediately he started? When did we build that? So there's a, there's a funny story about why it's called that to begin with. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, 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 I want him on to tell the story. So I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for you, Kevin, anytime you're ready. <laughs> But yeah, no, and I, I, I know why we don't have yeah. to say. I'd rather he tell. No, we know we'd been in in the Dominican Republic. He asked me to redo the nightclub there. Yes. Uh, about halfway through the season, and so we'd done this whole under the sea theme. And when I was out shopping around for it, I found this taxidermy full size shark. And like there was this whole thing where I kept coating the shark in shellac to try to preserve it, so I had like a daily shellacking of the shark. And one of the things in the plane when we flew to Turks and Caicos was this shark, which I then had hanging in my office, which had come out of the nightclub in in, in Punta Cana. Excuse me, Rap, one sec. About like how many how many uh, feet was this shark? Was it a, like a six footer or smaller? About that, five six. Okay. Yeah, you put Sorry. it on its tail. It came up to about my nose. Okay. That was sort of like the beginning of the decoration idea, and then it was this whole thing where we were extending that undersea theme to go with it. So we that was the the first thing we hung up. But then I I like handmade the original Sharky sign myself, like in in my shop. We actually redid that. We redid the whole uh, nightclub there in a sort of a surf theme too, which was really fun because we got to I made it's like fifteen full size wooden surfboards that I made to look like old school longboards. There's actually a picture of us all someplace where we're everybody. It's like me and Kevin and Hammer and LP and everybody, and we're standing. You know, with each of us with one of those boards behind us, like an old school surf photo before I installed them. All right. This is a, okay. Yeah. I, I've never seen sharkies. I have seen some photos, but yeah, I never knew about that. You, so you made these surfboards yourself? Yeah. So they went into the nightclub for sharkies. Okay. I made a and I made a lot of like realistic wooden fish. And we made it sort of, it had a little under the sea theme going with it too. Yeah. But if one, it was a, there was a surf shack that was semi disused. It was like a little, it had been part of a sailing shack. So the structure was already there, but then he wanted to convert it into a, a, a beach bar. And so we'd sort of latched on to the shark that we'd brought with us as sort of the beginning inspiration of the thematics for that. Okay. And, and I assume you had some kind of inauguration or opening of Sharkies? Oh yeah, we had a, so that season we had a band. I don't know if you know Chente Scarpita or Grand Day. Yes. Um, yeah, they had a band. And so they had, we had a house band that was our band that played. So, yeah, we had a big opening and the band would play Sharkies like, I don't know, once a week for the rest of the season. But, yeah, they had a big opening party and that was sort of the, the christening of the band as well. Okay. And then I guess, and then subsequent years, the Club Med artists would perform there, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there in subsequent years, but. I would okay. assume so. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> you did, well, you did, you did spend like a, a whopping 13 months in Turks and Caicos that season, right? 
Yeah, yeah, we were there all. I was there from, yeah, that fall to the, I think it was that September to the following October. Yeah, it would have had to been October that I finally left the next year. So yeah, it was 13 straight months. Are there any other memories of that season we haven't covered? I mean, obviously a lot went on. Um, I think one of the most interesting things about it from an entertainment perspective was we swapped out the classical animator model for an animation team instead. So it was a, people from across the village were gathered in like a, a squad of maybe 15 people. So we would do all of the animator duties as a, as a group, which made for a very different kind of, like it was more like we were performing like 15 person plays, like 15 of us would dress up as pirates, dress up a boat and then try to take over the entire scuba boat as an attacking pirate ship, things like that. It sounds like fun. It was fun. We did a, we did the whole one one day. Well, we do like like full day dramas. There was one day where we did the whole thing where we're like we were where I was a bad guy who was uh, kidnapping somebody, and I I taken somebody's some GM's girlfriend, and I kidnapped her for like the whole day. And then there was like a, a hero who was chasing me around like the entire day. So you would see us like run past, and he would like like run across the roofs, and he would chase me. And like so, in the middle of everything that would happen all day, there'd be like thirty seconds of it where it was this all day long villain chase scene that had been going on between me and I guess Scotty, the DJ played the uh, virtuous hero in that. And would this culminate like, I don't know, during the show where you finally got caught, like, would it go even that, that? Uh, Yeah. 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 They would, they would, so that the, at the end, a lot of them would run through the show or run into the show or showed up at the end of the show. You would finally see the conclusion of the story arc of the thing that we were performing that. Okay. Oh, this this sounds amazing, man! I wish I would have uh, encountered that. Yeah, it was it was super fun. It, we did a lot of stuff that I think was unusual, and everyone was really like. For example, we also did. I think we were the first people to ever design a entire custom circus show, Cirque du Soleil style. Uh, so that show was called Circus Nightmares and Children's Dreams, and I made I made it in a, a giant wrought iron bed, like the size of a crash pad. That was part of it. I made a whole rig that pulled up into the ceiling where um, that named Vincent did an act on chains. Like we uh, we worked new acts, and it was a very it was a story involved circus show with its own sort of costuming and and makeup. It was a, a drama about the entry entry into a little girl's nightmare. Good thing it was an adult village. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, so you, prob- <laughs> so you probably you probably couldn't do this show at Sandpiper. I'm guessing, right? <laughs> Uh, probably not. No, the, that act was a little bit tortury. <laughs> okay. Although I am pretty sure that after me and Vincent sort of came up with that chain rig together and these sort of big flywheels that I'd mounted up in the ceiling of the theater and he took them with him and he still performs that show to this day in Canada somewhere. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. He, he ran, he took that act with him on the road and, and, and continued it on and sort of perfected it. But that was where it all started from this sort of chain thing we made together in that theater. And Vincent was the chief of circus? Wait, maybe? No, I think Scott oh, okay. Dakin was the chief of circus and Vincent was a catcher originally and then flyer. Okay. And then I think maybe Vincent was chief after Scott left. Scott was Australian. Oh, okay. I see. Uh, before we move on to your next season, though, like, please, yeah, don't, I mean, I don't want to cut you off, but if you have any, any more stories, please, uh, 
because you've had such an interesting career. I don't know how many stories you have, but you know, uh, we can move to charity or if you have more that you think the listeners might would like to hear, please, by all means. We did a lot of special weeks during that season too. Um, we had visits from, the, we did a sober week. We did an Olivia week. We did, um, what was the uh, LGBTQ men's organization? Oh, at, 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 at Atlantis. Atlantis, yes. We did We did two of those and those were super fun. They, those guys really, especially as like the, the theater person on, on site, there were a lot of those guys were really interested in interacting with the work that I was doing. So we had a really good time during those weeks. Like they were fantastic. And, no, and the whole team there was was great too. I don't know if you know Scott from Waterski and Red and uh, there's probably there's always a lot of now like sort of famous club med characters in that season. Yeah, I think you had Winnie at Scuba because he he mentioned he we did have Winnie at Scuba. Yeah, and is this where and Mikiko, met... who you interviewed? Uh, say again, sorry. And and Mikiko, who you interviewed? Yes, Mikiko. Yeah, that's right. Uh, is this where you met the Montreal Philharmonic? Uh, they were in they were in Punta. Kevin oh. brought the entire Philharmonic down for a week. Okay, because he's Kevin's from Montreal. Yeah, I was wondering how that happened because I've, I'm from Montreal and I've never seen the Philharmonic, so it'd be weird seeing them in Punta Cana. Okay. Yeah, no, they were fantastic. So we we used them like they, they had a whole we had a concert with them. We had a whole garden with huge things set up out in the garden with the full orchestra set up out there and this sort of giant GM picnic with this full orchestra around it, and they had like little quartet shows and the nightclubs like i think he yeah he, i think he, he set them all up for the week and in exchange they did you know shows every day with different parts of the orchestra and did you meet any politicians and turks or or was that other seasons uh in in punta the governor of nevada was there and his family and um, i actually became, became quite close with them uh, and sort of hung out with them for the week because they were really cool um and i met uh, dukakis's daughter <laughs> She was in Turks. Oh wow! Okay, that's uh, that's kind of random, right? Yeah, we, it was weird. We were having a conversation at dinner about how sometimes we're overshadowed by things that happen to our dads, and she's just like, "My dad was Mike Dukakis." I'm like, "Oh man, you win! You totally win!" Win. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, three. <laughs> And is it here that you wrote and choreographed a, the, a crazy sign? Because not not many people uh, do this. So I was just curious if this was the Turks and Caicos. That season. was in Asia. We had a we had a Bria uh, uh, Bintang. We had a a uh, a whole contest for it, and if who could come up with a new crazy sign. Mine was to Skilos. I wish I was a little bit taller. I don't know if you're aware of the song. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. Do you know if they're still performing this in Quebec? <laughs> <laughs> I do not think that they are. I did not win. But I thought I should have won. I felt very good about my entry. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, let's let's start in Asia. But before Bintan, where, where I, I worked as well, you were in Charting. So after Turks, now did you ask to go to Asia, or the, or they because you did a good job, they uh, they offered it to you? I was on the way out. Like I was like, okay, this is fun. I've been here for a couple of years now, and I should probably go and design some sets at you know real theaters again or bigger theaters, not real theaters. It's a real theater. Come on. Uh, and that was when I first met uh, Linda Sekowitz, who came down and she talked because we'd had a very positive reaction to our approach to entertainment in that season. She came down and interviewed all the entertainment team and she was like, hey, what do you guys want to do next? And I was like, I mean, I was thinking that I sort of experienced this now. So if I was going to do anything next, it would have to be something very different. 
And she was like, well, like what? And I was like, I don't know, Asia? <laughs> and then like six weeks later, Kevin showed up in my office and he was just like, so uh, I heard you wanted to go to Asia. I was like, I was like, it came up. He's like, so you're going. I was like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> and then he just kind of walked out. And uh, Linda Senkowitz, what was what was her job? Was she was she working in Miami? Was she a director? Yeah. She was the regional head of entertainment for North oh. America. Okay, got it. All right. And you got your wish. You go to Charting. Probably didn't appreciate the jet lag you got. Um, and then I'm assuming monkeys were stealing stuff out of your backpack. But you get there. Uh, your chief of village is Yves Lebon. Correct. Uh, yes, Elabon. Okay. Correct. And uh, what do you think? Uh, did you get any like um, culture shock? Like for, this is, I'm assuming, your first time in Asia, right? It was my first time in Asia. Uh, I mean, I love charging. They were a great team. I was the got used to being referred to as the American because I was the only one that I knew in the entire Asian zone. Out of all the places I went, I never met another American. So uh, most people I worked with were Asian or Australian, Kiwis. A lot of people come up through the New Caledonia circuit or are all the circus people come out of Byron Bay. So like those clumps of people. And then obviously uh, people from the various and sundry countries that we worked in. So it was, uh, it was really great to get to know those people. Is there, everyone was very welcoming though. I had like a, I had a really great time. Like that, that first season in Sheraton beach, we had a ton of fun. He was a great guy and uh, he really sort of pushed me into a lot of uncomfortable corners. They ended up enjoying you know, he's just like, like wanted me to perform on stage with him and stuff <laughs> where like I was, you know, you know, stuff that I hadn't really done before, like be a part of all that sort of classic French cabaret humor that really hadn't been a part of what I was doing when I was in the American zone. But that's what he liked and he wanted me to do it with him. So I, I jumped in. We had a ton of fun. And like I said, there was just great, great people. Like that's where I'm most about that. That and that and the monkeys. <laughs> no one yes. forgets the monkeys. They, uh, so do you remember, did you encounter like the boss of the monkeys at one point? Like, and he wouldn't let you pass? Oh, <laughs> I fought him. Oh, really? There's that train and you got to go way, way out. To yeah, that yeah. yeah. So um, wait, were the, were the monkeys putting on their own shows? Is that why he needed the staple gun? What's going on here? Oh, no. So when you had to go set up the nightclub, you were alone out at that nightclub way out in the jungle. And you were the only one there. And the monkeys were like really aggressive. So like I was going to set up nightclub shows out there, like they would be very aggressive about trying to keep me out of their theater during the daytime. Like they were used to shooting out when the nightclub started at night. But in the daytime when I was there alone, they would like come at me <laughs> quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the staple gun, you could, you could, you know, you shoot it. And by the time it's a foot away from the staple gun, it's at a, it's just enough to boink you in the nose. But the the me and the I called him the king of the disco monkeys had a had a detente where I would just eventually I'd just show him the staple gun and he'd look at it and be like, oh. but he'd stay back like ten feet. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, hey, he was a that was a tough monkey. Well, you also mentioned something else interesting about this village that I had never heard before. I'm going to ask you to repeat it because I was too embarrassed to tell you when you told me your pre-interview, I, I didn't understand something about fires. Can you explain this again? Like why the village was closed oh. for a few months? So the entire peninsula is rainforest, as you're well aware. 
that the floor of a rainforest is packed vegetation down to a depth of about three meters. In the late 90s, they started getting fires that lit into that layer of vegetation underneath the forest floor. So they couldn't be extinguished. You would never see the flames, but suddenly there was a part of every year where just a copious amount of smoke would be rising out of the ground and would cover that whole part of the peninsula. And eventually it got so bad that we just couldn't stay in operation during that part of the year. So they became sort of a nine month a year village at that time so that we could get away from that essentially smoke season. Okay. No, I never, I never heard this before. This is really interesting. It, it hasn't happened recently, but it was a phenomenon of the, of the time that sort of affected everything in Malaysia back in the late nineties. There was a sort of, dense cloud of smoke that would rise out of the ground and last for months. And because of that, were, were you sent to, to Ria Binta? Uh, yeah. So we were, we were gap seasoned because of that. So we'd finish up around Christmas time. And then I, I was out for a month and then I showed up in Binton, I think by January or February of that year. Okay, I worked a year in Binten, 2001, 2002. So I'm curious, like, what did you, what did you think of the, uh, the resort overall? Well, I mean, you know, Binton's a very different animal from most of the rest of them. It's, you know, the island's privately owned by the president of the country and everything around it is basically another resort. So it was very sort of groomed. The, the village itself is beautiful, but you know that. Yes. Um, as, a, as, a, as a set designer, it was interesting because, because of the way it's built into a cliff. Did you go down into the area where the set designer works when you were there? Yes. It's an ever-deepening series of tunnels that go back into the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> so like all of my shops and everything were like cut directly out of the rock, like in behind the theater. So it would get sort of darker and darker as you went back into my storage areas. And did you have the occasion to like take the ferry to Singapore at all to go like buy oh. stuff you needed? Oh, there and more. Not just the ferry. Uh because you got I gotta I gotta shop stuff too. I gotta shop fabric, I gotta shop wood, I gotta shop all kinds of things. All that happens in Tangible Bond. And the only way to get to Tangible Bond, you go to the ferry dock. And if you look to your right, there's a bunch of little crazy looking boats that all the locals are getting on. Yeah. You got to take one of those. Okay. And they go straight out across the oil tanker weights through the Straits of Malacca, jumping like three, four feet off the waves as they're going, trying to shoot behind the boats okay. with like 45 people and 10 chickens in them. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yeah, I would do that every every couple of weeks. I had to do that every time I needed new new stuff. I would I would do that. I was very popular though because I would bring back cold McDonald's cheeseburgers uh, <laughs> for everybody in the village when I when I went out shopping for my uh, my sticks and fabrics and stuff. And what did you what did you think about Singapore as a city? Ninety Singapore was it's not what Singapore is now. Like I've been back since, and it's now it's like way more fun. Back then it was like strict like i'm yeah. a, yeah, I'm a is it true you're allowed gum now I, i've heard that yes but at the time i was like a wanted serial jaywalker oh, <laughs> oh like, you did they, you you did yeah they, you know they had undercover jaywalking cops like if you yeah, yes yes exactly you never see a police car anywhere <laughs> they're all yeah undercover. and they just come out of nowhere and be like ah you ran across orchard road and i was like yes <laughs> <laughs> 
So where did you buy a lot of stuff? And uh, my favorite um, store was Takashimaya just off Orchard. Did you ever go into Takashimaya? Was that like multi-level? Uh, I guess you could call it a mall, but it was more beautiful than <laughs> a regular it mall. Was, it was lovely and I've been to it. But the reason why I did all my shopping in Indonesia is because uh, my budget was not great. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Singapore is not is not cheap. Okay. Yeah, Singapore is expensive. That's more where I went with like when we get you know because by then this is like later in my career they were finally giving us like one day off every two weeks. Like at, at the beginning there were no days off, <laughs> but later we got like one day off. That's where I would go on my one day off. Would be like Singapore, where like a bunch of us would go in there and, and you know run around Singapore with my is friends it, that were there. And it's this the season where you were promoted or named uh, like set designer for all of Asia. Yeah, so they, it started out with me receiving stagiaires, which started a little bit towards the end of my time in the American zone. But by the time I was in Asia, I would get somebody who would come in once every couple of months. They'd send somebody in and just have them train with me, and then uh, sort of towards the end of it, they would uh, they'd say, "Okay, well." can you go and train a couple people? Like I went to Bali a couple of times because they had a, they had a lot of, there's a very strong artistic culture in Bali, which I'm sure you're aware of. And so a lot of the set designers for the Asian zone come out of Bali. So I would go there and, and work with a couple of Balinese guys and had guys come in and train with me during that period of time. And then sort of towards the end of it, there was a, there was a whole hullabaloo because the head of worldwide entertainment was flying in from Paris and everyone was like in a kerfluffle and I was ignoring it because I didn't think it had anything to do with me. And then uh, and the, they were like, maybe they're going to make your, make your boss a chief village or something. I was like, maybe, good for you. I like that guy. <laughs> and I, <laughs> like, but I was really paying attention. And then he showed up and started asking me a ton of questions. And like one day later after he left, that was when they asked me if I wanted to be in charge of, uh, of set design for the American region, go back to North America and, be on the team that runs their entertainment and sort of be the regional responsible for my section. And that stage was at Sandpiper, correct? Uh, well, we started at Sandpiper when we first went, but we, uh, so there was sort of a collection of us, one lighting designer, one set designer, one sound designer, one costume designer. And the four of us would travel together. So this was this, this was the start of the A-team? As, this as was as the like, start of the age. So we got, we came back and that sort of, that was some, there was sort of a whole brainchild of Linda. She had this idea about how in, in previous to that, no one had ever looked at sector wide, how we handled entertainment as a product. So they, it sort of been handled village to village and there were, there were good ideas. And those ideas sort of trickled down when personnel would move, but there was no sort of central push from Miami to, propagate the good ideas and talk about what were the bad ideas effectively to sort of look at it as a, as a management exercise for a whole zone and not just one village at a time. So she put together this team of a flying team of one person with discipline and she said, okay. And that person's in charge of, so we were in charge of budgets, equipment, personnel, training, and evaluation for all of North America's villages. Okay. So this was, uh, part of the team, or the team was uh, Olivier de Kegel, Chente, Linda Senkowitz, and Mar Marie. Now, Marie, was Marie the costume designer? Marie's Martel? Yes. Well, out of Montreal on costume design. Okay. Vincente Scarpita, or Chente. 
out of Caracas, Venezuela, as he would pronounce it, and Olivier de Kegel, who's a Flemish Belgian. Okay. And then, and then during this time, were you based in Cancun for a bit, the the resort? Uh, we we weren't all based in the same spot. Me and uh, me and Olivier were based out of Cancun. Chente was based out of the Miami office. So, but it didn't. I mean, we were home at our home village, maybe five days a month tops, and the rest of the time we were on the road. Okay, got it. And was it? After this time that I guess your approach to start coming up with ideas or to make a show for the 50th anniversary for Club Med? So they started, there was, along with our village duties, there was what was called specials. So anytime we were doing something that was like super press intensive, they would, they would have us come in. And there was another team of, there was a team of, uh, of chefs too, who, who came in and did those like the they got a sort of an all-star team together every time they wanted to really impress so you know they have like a big event like we did a full event week for uh sergio Tacchini clothing we did uh 50th anniversary in american zone we did 50th anniversary for the european zone which we all went to france for and worked on together with our sort of french flying team they had a team there too of sort of like their person for each discipline. So we'd work alongside them. So uh, we went to France for that. We went to, we did the, the 50th anniversary launch was Columbus Isle in North America. I remember very distinctly because there was a boat wreck and all the things to make the show I wanted to make ended up getting destroyed and I had to cut down a couple of trees and <laughs> make my own stuff. Uh, now, what about now? We, we reached out to a former uh, GO and guest on the show, Sammy, because you couldn't recall where they had sent you, right? So at one point, you're at Club Med Pompadour, right? For that's where it was. Yes, yes, Pompadour. Because, like I said, I recall <laughs> this. I, I, I won't give my thoughts on this 50th anniversary show because I know you worked hard on it. But I, you know, I did this show in Lindemann Island from 2000 uh, to 2001. Got so, the spin out package. Okay, so I'm just I was just curious. So you're at Pompadour. Is Sammy Sammy there with you? Yeah, he came. I don't remember why. I think he was our representative animator on the team. We didn't usually have one, but I think he was the the one that we brought as part of our North American delegation to that. So the idea was that we would come and do the one there in Pompadour, and then they put together a, like a kit, basically that was like, okay, so this is how we spin this out to every other region. So you take this kit to each region and then everybody has to work with this specific setup. So there was like sort of a, a stylized sun and a bunch of other things that had some sort of branding related pieces. But we sort of made a kit with the guys in France and then we took that kit back to our various regions and included in that was some custom animator stuff. And Sammy was there, I believe, to learn that. I will admit that my conversations with Sammy were largely social. And so I don't know exactly what he did when he was there. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I know a lot of stuff he did, but it, it, it wouldn't work. <laughs> Classic Sammy. Okay, he would find that yeah. funny. People, he, he would find that very funny. Okay, all right. Wow. And um, I said at one point in in two thousand, you're you're sent to the reopening of Punta Cana. But why why was Punta Cana reopening? Was it did a hurricane go through it or something, or is that they just renovated the village for? It used to be half the size it is now. 
Okay. Um, they were, yeah, they were doubling room capacity. It was when they built that big, giant, sort of sinuous pool, too. Okay. And it, it, it included full entertainment space refits, including a full theater refit. But because of the way Club Med stages that kind of thing, all the equipment gets shipped from Europe. So somebody has to order every single thing you need to make any part of a, a North American village work. And then it all comes out of shipping containers. And then someone has to take it all and put it where it goes and turn it into an actual living, working space. So we were there to do that for their theater and to an extent for all the sound systems and nightclubs and anything that sort of had art decoration. So we ended up just being there for, we were there for, that was almost two months. We spent uh, working our way through getting all that stuff and all the stuff that didn't come. That was the whole, the theme, the, the theme was, uh, was, you order stuff and then it gets cut in budget in Paris and then half of what you asked for comes. For example, Olivier got his light bulbs but didn't actually get the lights that they go in. <laughs> yeah, and famously to our, our big boss, the, the guy who was running it all from Paris, he had a whole tirade he went on because he cleared out a whole section to be a, like a football pitch and uh, they didn't send him his grass and he was... It's just like they were supposed to get rolls of sod to sort of plant this football field. He was like, what will I do without my grass? Will I play on dirt? I have no grass. <laughs> so it was like six weeks of that, basically. And then they, well, if you want to hear a really funny story about that, we were there for the opening. They decided to open on Christmas week. The week before that, they reversed the flow system on the air conditioner, and that shot all the uh, little charcoal filtration pellets backwards into the thing that pushes the water down the pipes which broke all the air conditioners in the entire village. Oh, God. And they opened it anyway. Uh, <laughs> that was a, oh, an exciting week of GM complaints where, the, where the, the entire air conditioning system for the whole village was, was sputtering based on a, on a, a flow system problem from the, be, from, from the very beginning that we kind of knew was going to happen, turned into kind of a, a whole... I, yeah, I don't even want to imagine... What would it cost to replace all the air conditioners in a, in a I, village that I size? Have no <laughs> idea. It would it would have been murderous though. But I think the problem was that it was because it was Christmas week and grand opening. They sort of weighed the cost of that against the cost of refunding. You know, I mean, it was like a thousand rooms at that point uh, with the new expansion, and they were just like, "There's there, there was no way they couldn't. There was no way to figure out how to send all those people home or not receive them." Because it happened like two days before they were supposed to arrive. Like yeah. you just couldn't, yeah, you couldn't stop them at that point. So yeah. we just had to figure it out. And the rates are usually double that Christmas and New Year's, right? Yeah. So it was a whole, yeah, it was a whole, whole debacle. I wouldn't want to be the, the guys in charge of that. We were just in charge of making a theater that was full of kind of half finished stuff work. <laughs> we had enough trouble with that. Yeah. But it was, it was I mean, like I said, they, they brought in, like the best people they could find for every section and everybody may do. And we still got through it all, but that was a pretty dramatic December. Yeah, I think we were there from mid November all the way to new year's kind of getting that, getting that opening off the ground. So I guess, were you there for the famous Y2K? Was it in Punta Cana? Uh, Y2K, I was back home in Cancun. Okay. Um, we were doing a whole, uh, so if you work, well, you work at Club Med at all, like I, I can remember after I left Club Med in like 2002, it was the first time I had been to like a holiday in years. <laughs> because, you know, when you, when you work entertainment at a resort, holidays are the hardest work, not the least hard work. So you're 
like you know you work all night on new year's eve basically yes yeah so, so i'm i can remember coming out cancun that it was the, the, for the y2k because i can remember the light coming up out over the reef in the morning <laughs> while i was still there sort of uh, trying to diffuse unexploded fireworks on the beach <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one memory of Y2K. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all my all my holiday memories are all, are all of of me barely seeing them because I was like there was there was that the week I was talking about we did for Sergio Tacchini. I did so many fashion shows in one week that the only thing I had to eat all week was toast points with the red caviar and flat champagne because that's what was left over from the one before that I was cleaning up. <laughs> No, not the black caviar, because people like that one. That's right. Yeah. The red the red one that everyone leaves, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's all that's all that was there when I was cleaning up. So that was pretty much the only meal that I could I could get into me. I had a girlfriend who would occasionally bring me a banana. That was it. <laughs> and rather uh rather unexpectedly, there was a fire in the theater in Crested Butte, correct? And uh you had to build a modular staging system. Are you able to explain that a little? So while we were in Pompadour. They had a, so it was, it was right when Crested Butte was set to open. It was the beginning of Crested Butte. And they were building the theater, and then there was an electrical fire that sort of devastated the whole inside of the theater. And it just, it was non-functional. There's a, I don't know, this is a thing, it's too technical. I don't know if you know what dimmer packs are. They no, sir. A, they, pack. they are the, lights are connected to dimmers. Dimmers are what ma makes lights kind of, go slowly brighter and, and less bright with, with that kind of volume, like the kind a house switch wouldn't work. So you have a thing called a dimmer. It's like a big electrical card. They had a dimmer fire, uh, which is not uncommon in theaters actually, uh, but it sort of shorted them out, but their season was about to begin. So it was like, they're going to have to build the theater and finish it while the season is active. So we sort of went there to figure out how to, let them have shows every night without a theater. And the answer ended up being building sort of me and this guy named Tony, <laughs> who's a, who's an all-star from one of my, my stages is now a politician in Florida. True story. We, uh, we built this whole, we were locked in like a lightless room in the basement for like three straight weeks while we built an entire set of interlocking mobile stages and then modular piece sets that all locked together. And then every day, Every night we have to tear the whole thing down to leave the lobby open. Then every night from like five to seven, as dinner was starting, we would go in and during the first hour of dinner, we would build an entire theater and set it up and be ready for the show like every single night. And so I ended up staying there to run the shows with him for just a couple of months because we just couldn't. It was it was too labor intensive for one person, basically, but there was no other way to get around it until they finally managed to get a full theater set up opened up okay rap and after you know more or less i guess you were there for for most of the the reopening but how long did they keep you until they let you go you know knowing that everything was going to work smoothly uh january february we had to leave to go to do the um there's a southern caribbean circuit to guadalupe martinique saint lucia and then we came back to crested butte at the very sort of end of the season to to in the end of their season, which is April, May, to look at it, and that was uh, that was the end of my time at Club Med. I, I I bowed out after that and moved to New York. 
Okay. And in that time, like I'm sure you, you're a lot of people you enjoyed uh, working with. You mentioned uh, some names already. Uh, is there anyone that you got along well with that you liked working with? Well, I mean, obviously my whole A-team team, we were like a family. Like we would, we traveled together so much that occasionally I would wake up with my head on my suitcase in airports and be like, where are we? And Shanti would go like, 80? <laughs> like it got to be a blur. So yeah, they were like, we were, we were, you know, we spent like, we went to, we went to Cuba for their big openings, like spent a month there. We went all over the place for years. You were, at, you were at the opening of Cuba? Yeah. Okay. I, I heard this story. Uh, I don't know if this was, if it's lore or if it's myth at this point, I was just wondering if you, if you heard this, I heard at the opening of Cuba, there was someone, so they invited all the press. So the, a, lot, a lot of big bigs and VIPs were there, right? Mm-hmm. I heard that, that someone came, arrived on the plane and he was wreaking havoc and every service they were letting him try trapeze or whatever. It turned out at the very end, they announced it was the animator and no one, but no one knew this except for the chief of village. So did, did you, did you, did you hear about this or did this, did you see this happen? <laughs> I missed it entirely. I was okay. head down in the middle of my own problems. Okay. I don't, well, know if you, I don't know if you've ever tried to get to equipment and supplies in, in Cuba, but it was, uh, it was okay. its own whole <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. What you had to go through. <laughs> Okay. Uh, a lot of red, 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 red tape. Let's just say, right? No. Okay. okay. Those, you know those periods of time you go through at Club Med where your social time starts like midnight. It was yes. one of those times, like where I like anything that happened before midnight. I don't know about it because I was neck deep in trying to get my own stuff sorted out. Okay. Well, I'm glad you'd ever worked in Italy because uh, Italy for me was fascinating, and I wasn't a set designer. But whenever I needed something from from maintenance, they would always say. Oh, Greg, dopo domani, not tomorrow. They'd say always the day after tomorrow, you'll get it. <laughs> I said the day after tomorrow, <laughs> why not tomorrow? And they're like, no, 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 dopo domani. So I'm kind of glad you never, you never had that, that experience of, of Italy. Right. But I guess each country has its own quirks, right? In Cuba, you, the only way to buy anything in the world of hardware is at a government hardware store. And you go, you do all your shopping, they itemize everything. They give you a bill. Then you have to take it back to the accounting department. They have to cut you a check for that exact number plus another check for the government. Then you have to take those two checks back with the list. And if anything on the list isn't there, they start again. God. Okay. (laughs) Which was a real... So I ended up getting... There was some things we just couldn't get. And I ended up meeting a fella (laughs) who had a van who, who... sold hardware out of the back of his van like after midnight. Okay. <laughs> that's also where I got my cigars. Oh. Ah, <laughs> that's famous. true. Yes. <laughs> yes, because I hear they're they're illegal in your country, but totally illegal in Cuba. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That guy had everything you could possibly want. <laughs> but it was like the, the thing was this thing about staples. I couldn't get any staples. So I finally had to go to the black market for staples. That guy became for everything. Yeah, yeah, they just didn't have any. Like the official government hardware store didn't have any because the logistics of the Caribbean, everything goes through Miami and gets broken up in Miami. You can't send a container from Miami to Cuba, which means Cuba can only get a full boat of stuff. So when they get something, they have a ton of it. 
and they have to use it till they're out. And then they don't get any more until they get another like entire boat. Speaking well, speaking of this, like technically, so you're you're American though. Like, so I'm I was always fuzzy about this details. Is it is it that you're you're allowed to visit Cuba, but you cannot spend any money there? This is what I've heard. I don't know if this is true. Well, at the time, well, A, okay, you can't fly from America to Cuba or Cuba to America. Yes. But you can fly from Cancun. Yes. <laughs> like on these weird old Air Cubana 60s jets, they'll, they'll, they'll fly you into Cuba. The Cubans never care. There's no anti-American embargo there. You can okay. go there if you want it. But the Americans care. So the Cubans just stamp your passport in a separate piece of paper, and you just don't don't tell. Okay. <laughs> At the God, time, God. you just didn't tell. Yeah. Yeah, so we don't, don't ask, don't tell. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. I was good, like, no, obviously, I think my 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 favorite. Well, yeah, my, my favorite people are probably my A team team. But there's also a big. I have a big sort of soft spot in my heart for. Like, I just just got together in Rome last month with part of my sort of. There was this Asian circus crowd that were really I was really tight with the Byron Bay crew. There's a circus school. Do you do you know it in Byron Bay, Australia? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. I've heard it. I've I've worked with a lot of uh, geos from Byron and good friends. So yeah, I, I have heard of it. Yes. Yeah, so they, they sort of propagate a ton of geos from Byron, and they're sort of like a clan, you know. And I became quite tight with that clan. Interestingly, running that rig now is Steen Shore, who was the chief of circus my first season in Punta Cana. Oh, wow. That's pretty yeah. cool. Have yeah, but I just ran into uh, uh, Ben Haldren, the infamous ace, uh, was on his honeymoon in Rome when I was there like two months ago. So I, I got to reconnect with him. But I went down to Australia years after I left Clem and hooked up with all those guys in Byron. Like, just okay, to, so you uh, you 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 actually went to Byron. I, I I didn't get a chance to go. So it's beautiful, I hear, right? Oh, it, it is. It's a beautiful, laid-back town. It's so funny that like when people talk about like the Hemsworth brothers, yes. they make complete sense to me because they're all from Byron. I'm like, yeah, but everybody from Byron is like that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, they're all yeah, six five blonde hunky. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, Everybody I, I know from there is a circus catcher. They're they're exactly like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I had one of my uh, one of my circus catchers in Lindenman was from Byron, and I asked him, "What'd you do for a job before in Byron Bay? Like, wh where were you working?" He goes, oh, "I I'd make sandcastles, mate." I go, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Yeah, I'd make sandcastles on the beach, and the tourists would tip me." I said, that's not a job. He goes, yes, it was. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's what I thought. Oh, I, Byron must be some special place, man. I got to get over there. Okay. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very late day. I went, I went and spent a, a couple of weeks there, years after I left Club Mad, just to hang out with those guys because I still keep touch with most of the ones that actually use computers, which is like half. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the rest are making sandcastles and what have you. Yeah, that's One right. of them girlfriends on facebook and his girlfriend will he'll, he'll write me letters through his girlfriend's uh facebook messenger that's how i hear from him yeah 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 exactly <laughs> not big on the social media right <laughs> yeah not, no he's not <laughs> but yeah so that whole clan was great and they that started from from as soon as i got to asia sort of became close friends with all those guys so they were they were fantastic and i'm still friends with all of them to this day and then of course you know my original early season friends Actually, I was well. I used to hang out with a lot of circus people the whole time, but that's because they're in the theater, which is where my office is. So you, that's that's you tend to meet all the circus people, and so and we do shows together and stuff. So I actually got you know like in the in the Turk season because we built that big circus show together. They actually talked me into into doing some doing some clowning in it just because 
I was there the entire time for rehearsal anyway, because it was all new equipment. I had to watch anyway, <laughs> so they talked me to being in it. So I'm pretty tight with all the circus crews that I worked with over the years. But yeah, there was, I mean, and then beyond that, it's too, there's too many people to mention. I mean, I just, yeah, you know, you make, you make a lot of great friends in every season. And everybody's fantastic, obviously, you know, so much fun. And so you left Clement around 2001. So I guess you've had time to think about like, so are there anything, is there anything you miss about Clement? I mean, the things that I miss about it, I think aren't there anymore. So uh, there's really nothing for me to miss. Like, I don't think that what goes on there now is what happened there 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, for legal reasons, probably can't be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would guess we, just like purely under liability considerations, that's now impossible. Yeah, right? yeah. We should yeah. we should just appreciate we were there at a good time, and you know. <laughs> yeah. The, the 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 thing I was I was my takeaway from that because I've spent most of the rest of my life being a manager of various kinds, and people when when people are talking about you know maximizing productivity or whatever. I was like, you know, I used to work in a place where everybody worked seven days a week, 20 hours a day and was happy about it. And what I learned about that was you can't make people do stuff, but you can convince people to like stuff. And then once they like stuff, they'll just do it anyway. Yeah. And I, I think that's what I miss about Club Med. It was that sense of we were all doing it because it was our job. But also, if it wasn't our job, we'd probably do it anyway. <laughs> like nobody was ever doing anything they really didn't want to do except for maybe like one hour a day. The rest of it was, you know, like, like I, I fell easily into that life because I like going to dinner parties with random people. <laughs> so, you know, like, like if you ask me as part of my job to just go to a dinner party with random people every day. Okay. <laughs> like, and I feel like I wish that everybody else in the world could work in a, in a condition where, what they did every day was so enjoyable to them that they, well, that they do it in exchange for plastic beads instead of money. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was simpler times and, you know, and or maybe these people had jobs in the quote unquote real world before. So, you know, in reality, you know, if you're working that long and that many days, but you're in paradise, well, you know, which, where would you rather work, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, yeah. that's the thing that I miss anything. I miss that. That sense of all of us pitching in together every day, but also, you know, all of us, all of us were having fun together every day too. And there were the only rule against that was you couldn't take too many of your friends to dinner. You had to bring some other people along with you. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. that, you know, yeah. so. only only two spoons allowed in those glasses, people. Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and you had your you had your rotating companions and that's I, I enjoyed that too like in the middle of the afternoon like ooh, we dinner 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 you know those people we met today we're gonna take them all over and go to this other restaurant all of us you know like yeah just you know it's fun and that was it it was mostly about people the people were great i love the people i worked with and i love the endless rotating cast of guest stars every week it was like uh, being on the love boat yeah <laughs> that's right you had your cruise director, you got Isaac, the bartender over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And you got your guest stars every week, you know, and, and and amongst those guest stars every week, there's always people who are hilarious and weird and do weird stuff and have weird stories. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And did you I find... Got, I got GM. I still know this day, too. Oh, really? You're still in touch? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, when I went back to New York, uh, when I moved to New York after the end, there was a bunch of people there who had been GMs who I just ended up knowing in New York and being friends with. 
Oh, that's cool. Some of them I worked with there. Oh. Now, did you find that your first season was uh, was magical in some way because it was your first one? I don't know if you use that word, but uh, was there something special about that Punta Cana season? I mean, I feel like there was an innocence in me. Like it was my first time because my family isn't isn't a uh, big resort, you know, kind of family. Like we're a very you know, we make our own vacations. <laughs> so that was a very different experience for me. So I'd never been in an environment like that. I'd never been in the Caribbean. You know, I got to work with a lot of people from all over the world. And like, and it was sort of, all of that was very fresh and very new and very exciting and sort of a, a challenge. So I think like in that first season, I, I think the magical part of it was just how new and wide-eyed I was to all of it. And how much we were, you know, like it was very interesting. I think everybody should do family first, singles after. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm glad that I didn't go straight into the into the singles village deep end in season because season one, it's like hey, everything dies down after eleven in a family village. So you got to spend more time with like your actual friends. It isn't that three in the morning nightclub energy. Like you get in a singles village. And I think that, you know, that allowed me to sort of take all that on board, but still be a part of a part of a community that, that was the, there were the people I spent a lot of my social time with. And I think that was my favorite thing about the first season. Again, it was people. It's, it's always people. Okay, Rap. Now, before I let you go, because you've been so kind with your time, I was wondering, like, did I forget to ask anything? Did you forget to mention anyone, anyone else you wanted to shout out before we go? I mean, I, there's a long list of people. I tried to squeeze it as many as I could, but I, I feel like I'm, all, I'm always going to be neglecting somebody. Um, the Tom and Sarah and Joe and the Punta Cana photo team, for example, Bam Bam from Turks. Uh, I, who, else, who, else have I, who else have I failed to mention in this time? I feel, I feel like I'm going to get, oh, Lisa Simpson, the costumer, of course, Nurse Jenny, uh, Sylvie, Natu, Reds. Scott from Waterski, uh, Emmanuel Azuelos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, um, and and then uh, oh god, and then hi to um, I forgot, you know, your whole hostess class, Wendy, Lily. Uh, <laughs> like, I I could go on and on and on. So I feel <laughs> like I tried I tried to squeeze in as many people as I could yeah. there as, as on, my, do, on my way. Do not send, me do not send him angry. Yeah, don't send him angry emails, people. Okay, he's. <laughs> I tried, man. Like yeah, yeah. fifty people by name, but you know. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks again, Rap, for uh, taking the time to uh, talk to us here today. I really appreciate it. And and uh, thanks for having me. No, no, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to, to finally meet the man, the myth, the legend, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Now here's where we say goodbye to all our friends and people listening rap. So I'll let you take it out. Let's just have you say goodbye to everyone. Uh, I guess goodbye to everyone. It was great being here. And I hope I hear from you all in the future. You heard them people look them up and thanks again, sir. And we'll see you all next week with another new installment of my first season. Bye.